everybody will get to the right place. Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, and we'll read the verses, familiar verses about the Lord's Prayer once again. I hope you still have the little notebook that we gave out at the beginning of the series. It does my heart good to see children come up to me at the end of the service and show me the notes they've been taking. Sometimes it's in a separate page, sometimes it's in that booklet, but uh, something to refer to later because we need to meditate on the Word of God. Amen? We need to just recycle it, have it going through our hearts and minds continually. We've come to the topic of private prayer. And the Lord's Prayer, what is known as the Lord's Prayer, is a part of that discussion in the Sermon on the Mount from the lips of our Savior. And so we'll be a few weeks on this subject, but it's not really treated separately. It is a part of the overall Lord's or or Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer. Verse 9, after this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the model prayer. This is what Jesus gave us as the inspired template for prayer. I hope that the very Familiarity of it does not breed contempt or neglect in your heart. This is not the true Lord's Prayer. The true Lord's Prayer is what we read at the beginning of the service from John chapter 17. We didn't read it in its entirety, but about half of it. In your personal devotions, I would encourage you to study those two together. That's what I'm doing right now. It gets my heart ready to preach on Sunday, but it helps me personally as well to read the, the disciples' prayer and the Lord's Prayer. You know, if we're conscious of how Jesus is praying for us, don't you think it will affect our praying to Him? I believe so. I believe our prayers to the Lord will be more scriptural, more spiritual, and more effectual. Why? Because He lives in us, in the person of His Holy Spirit. Aren't you glad of that? The Holy Spirit indwells us. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. The Spirit of Christ indwells us. And I submit this for your deep consideration. I hope you'll remember this. His life in us here is the same as his life at the right hand of the Father. It is a praying life. We've come to the second and the third petitions of this prayer. They're all found in the same verse there. In verse 10, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. The heart of all true prayer is asking. And so what we considered last week as the first petition, though many consider it to be just an an ascription to God, it really is a petition. May thy name be revered. May thy name be hallowed. May thy name be set apart, held in high esteem, held above every name that is named. And now we come to these second and third petitions. They go along with that first petition. Prayer, the heart of prayer is asking. We have not really prayed until we've asked God for something for someone, 
He invites us to ask. He says, I'm a great big God. I'm the God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. John Newton not only gave us amazing grace, but he also gave us a hymn. The lyrics go this way, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Let's remember that. We've noted how Jesus gave some very pointed do's and don'ts in the verses preceding what we hear know as the Lord's Prayer. Briefly remind you of that, review that. He wants us to be very personal with our Heavenly Father. He wants us to shut the door of our closet, to shut ourselves in with God, to shut the world out. He wants us to talk directly to our Father, conscious of His presence. And if we're going to do that, we're going to have to be knowledgeable about God so that we don't fall prey to some false notions that are out there, many of them, even about prayer. Finally, He wants us to be scriptural in our praying. You know, when we pray God's Word back to Him, that's the most powerful thing we could do. This is an inspired template. It's something we ought to, the basis we ought to cover every day. I agree with the late J.I. Packer, tremendous theologian, author of several books. He said, every prayer we pray should be a praying of the Lord's Prayer in some shape or form. He said, we never get beyond this prayer, and we never do until we stand before the Lord and our prayer turns to praise. And even then, we'll be asking that His name be hallowed forever and ever. So what we're considering here in verses 9 through 13 is the essence of all true prayer. It's something that we need to consciously do every day, not just as a matter of routine, not rote but it needs to be sincere, and it does need to become second nature. Last week, we considered those opening words after this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, or let thy name be hallowed, let it be set apart, revered, honored. Do we have a lofty view of God? God dwells with the one who has a lofty view of himself, we read in the book of Isaiah. Could I ask you, how big is your God? Is He pretty small? Have you dragged Him down to your level so that you can manage Him? You know, if we truly hallow His name, we will practice His presence. Though He is absent in body, we will treat Him as a person who is present. His Spirit indwells us. We will render Him pure worship. That's what the Father wants. That's what the Father is seeking is true worshipers, as Jesus told the fallen woman at the well of Samaria. We will obey Him implicitly. He is not Lord in truth. If, as He says in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, if we do not the things which He says. But now we get into the second and the third petition of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we see that the prosperity of God's kingdom and the accomplishment 
of His will are very closely related. The first is an active expression. The second is obviously, if you know English grammar, it's passive. Thy will be done. It's expressed in the passive voice. Let's examine them both. First of all then, thy kingdom come. The advance of Christ's kingdom. The second petition of the model prayer follows logically on the heels of the first. There's a natural continuity here. When we first ask that God's name be hallowed, and then we ask that His kingdom come, those two are very closely related. If men truly reverence God's name, you know what's going to happen? They're going to submit to His sovereignty. They won't balk at that. Now, when God says kingdom, what does He mean? There is much misunderstanding here, even in our fundamental independent Baptist circles. We've noted this in our study of the Beatitudes, and even before that, some of you will remember talking about what the word kingdom means as we studied the parables. There are the parables of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, it's now in spiritual form. And I need to emphasize that because many people in churches just like ours have been so influenced by some brands of modern dispensationalism that we cannot conceive of anything less than a literal, physical manifestation of the kingdom. Many of us, and I know I'm treading where angels fear to tread, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. I didn't get trained in the cemetery, okay? I got trained, some of you catch that later, but I, I got trained all by myself on the mission field with the Lord. We've been led to believe that when Jesus arrived on the scene, after being introduced by John the Baptist, and when He said, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we've been trained to think that He was offering up His literal physical kingdom on earth, but then the Jews rejected it, they did not repent, He was forced to postpone it and go to plan B, which was the kingdom of God, a spiritual kingdom. That sounds good. It makes for a lot of fascinating listening, but it ain't found in here, folks. It ain't found in this book. Pardon my English or lack thereof. God does not have a contingency plan like that. And if the plain sense of Scripture makes good sense, seek no other sense. The kingdom of heaven used preeminently in Matthew's gospel and the kingdom of God used more in, by Mark and Luke are the same, folks. They're the same. They're used interchangeably. Any distinction that is attempted to be created is a false one. And we must think correctly about this, or we will not have the renewed power in prayer that God wants us to have. We will not enter into the mind of Christ and be led by the Spirit of God. Okay, I've got your attention, and some of you are not sure. But at least you're listening. Thank you. We are to pray for the advance of God's kingdom in a twofold way. First of all, there's the present aspect, its present extension. And this is what is addressed in verse 33 of the same chapter. We haven't gotten there yet in our verse by verse exposition, but look at verse 33. Tremendous verse, many of you have memorized, many of you quote often, that's great. But seek ye first, Jesus says, the kingdom of God. That's the same as the kingdom of heaven. 
and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. God has promised to take care of all of our needs. That's what he's addressing here. What shall you eat? What shall you drink? Wherewithal shall ye be clothed? God has promised to take care of all of our needs, and He is concerned about those things. If we will seek the advancement of His kingdom and seek His righteousness, He hasn't promised to supply all our wants and our whims. Sometimes He will. If we delight in the Lord, He'll give us the desires of our hearts. We have a great God, He's not stingy. Now, by nature, we are sinners. And so that means by nature we are self-centered. Our kids were born with their fists clenched. What's mine is mine. And we tend to focus on our needs, our plans, our pleasures, our goals, our aspirations. But before Jesus gets into addressing anything that refers to us, He wants us to focus on God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. Yes, we do have needs. God knows that. Yes, we do have spiritual emergencies that arise. There are times that we just need to send up a quick SOS to the Lord. We barely have time to even get out the words, Lord, save me, Lord, help me. We can't go through all the proper protocol and and recite the whole Lord's Prayer like some people do, like they're rubbing a a, a, a rabbit's foot magically. When Peter was walking on the water and all of a sudden began to sink as he was trying to get to Jesus at his bidding, at least... He was willing to do that. Nobody else, none of the other disciples were. But then when he took his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink, that's all he could say was, Lord, save me. He didn't have time to recite the Lord's Prayer. If he had, before he got very far, it would have been glub, glub, glub. God understands that. We don't have time to consciously recite all the Lord's Prayer every time we pray. But we do. if we've been living in the fear of the Lord all the day long, as the Bible says, if we have set our hearts upon His priorities, it will seem very natural to appeal to the Father when one of those spiritual emergencies arise. It's interesting that that phrase, in earth as it is in heaven, found there in verse 10 at the end, it really ap- applies to all three of those petitions. There's Hebrew parallelism here. Some of you know what that means. So what Jesus is really saying is, hallowed be thy name on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom be established on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That phrase modifies all of those things. So in this present age, I want to be very practical and helpful to you this morning. How can we see the kingdom of God come? We're to pray thy kingdom come. What do we mean by that? Do we even know? What are we praying for? Where are we seeking to cooperate with an omnipotent God in this matter? So practical. So please take note here. I would urge you to write down on your little books or on something. First of all, there's the horizontal aspect of saying thy kingdom come, the horizontal aspect. And I think this refers to evangelism. When we spread the gospel, 
when we broadcast the good news that Jesus died, He was buried, He rose again so that men can be forgiven, so that they can be delivered from sin and the penalty of sin, and translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son, we are advancing God's kingdom agenda. That's the horizontal aspect. And so we read in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus began His earthly ministry coming into Galilee and preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Why did He say the kingdom was at hand or near? It was because the king was there. It doesn't mean that Jesus was about to set up His earthly kingdom and then He pulled it back, rescinded the offer. That's popular teaching, but it's not biblical, folks. Furthermore, Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, I must preach the kingdom of God in other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And so when He went to those other cities, He was always concerned about the other sheep and the other cities. And when he, he went there, he preached the soul-saving gospel. He demanded faith and he demanded repentance. And he made some stupendous claims, that at least they were considered that way by the people who heard him in his day. He actually said, the Son of Man hath power to forgive sins. Wow! The Jews picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy at that. He said, I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. How humbling was that? And so I ask you, I appeal to you, don't clutter up the kingdom agenda with a bunch of junk. We use that word kingdom advance, kingdom agenda pretty loosely. Don't clutter it up with a social gospel. Don't clutter it up with some kind of crusade to establish some kind of social social justice utopia on earth. Oh, but somebody says, but but I was reading the Gospel Coalition website the other day, and they said this. Could I just tell you my allegiance is not to the Gospel Coalition, it's to the Great Commission? And in the Great Commission, Jesus commands us to make disciples of an unseen kingdom, He doesn't ask us to impose a new social order on society. We need to hear that. So when we pray, Thy kingdom come, we are seeking, first of all, the horizontal extension of God's kingdom by spreading the soul-saving spiritual gospel. And when unbelievers are converted, and we've seen some saved in recent days in this church, praise the Lord, when they are admitted to the family of God, they are brought into the kingdom. God's kingdom is extended, and that kingdom takes in new subjects, not by coercion, but by love. I love that verse in Psalm 110 that says this, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. God makes people willing. When they get saved, they're willing. They may have been opposed just a few minutes before. They may have been going diametrically opposite to God's way, going their own way, but all of a sudden something happens, and they are stopped dead in their tracks, and they start going in the opposite direction on the narrow way, going against the grain of the broad way. That's the reality of the new birth, folks. 
And that's when the kingdom of God is, ex- is extended and, and new people are brought in. I love Isaac Watts' great hymn. It's a missionary hymn. Sometimes we sing it at missionary conference time, though it's not often thought of in that way. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. His kingdom spread. Amen. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Another verse says, people and realms of every tongue dwell on his love with sweetest song and infant voices shall proclaim their early blessings on his name. On Saturday mornings is one of the two times we have a Zoom prayer meeting. A number of men here today are involved in one or the other or both of those. And I've been going over the accounts of actual revival that God has given in more recent centuries, really. And over in the 1860s in Scotland, the revival that had first jumped across the Atlantic from America to Ireland spread to Scotland. It not only spread to adults and seafaring people and members of the upper echelon of society, but it spread to little children. I wish you could hear some of the actual accounts of the testimonies of those kids. Only the Holy Spirit could have shown them that. I urge you, study that. Study what God has done, the mighty works of God. We're so used to what happens on an ordinary Sunday, we don't even look for anything special. Infant voices shall proclaim their early blessings on His name. So the horizontal aspect of the spread of the kingdom is evangelism, winning souls. The vertical aspect, and there is one I believe, is what we would call sanctification. Did you know that God is concerned about the depth of His jurisdiction, of His authority, His sovereignty in our lives? If we have been born again, we have crowned Christ on the throne of our hearts. So here's the question. Yes, you've received Him as Lord, but does He rule unrivaled and fill up every room of your life? That's my question today. Is your heart full of joy and peace and holy aspiration? Because the Bible says in Romans 14, verse 17, and this is a key verse in this discussion, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not something physical that we think of ordinarily. No, what does the kingdom of God consist of? Here's what the Bible says. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. If somebody got happy in Jesus and started waving their handkerchief and shouting, we'd go... And yet that should be the norm, not because it's being put on, not, not because it's affected, but people getting happy in Christ, happy in the Lord. How deep is your commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? That's a key question because that is exactly how deep and no deeper that the kingdom extends in your life. Is there some area in which you're holding out against the king? I'm serious. You may have been saved for years, 
But there's still some things in your life. You've got a little compartment that's yours. Hands off, Jesus. You can have everything else, but this is mine. Some darling sin. Some fleshly stronghold. Some secret lust. Some stubborn possessiveness. Some area of entitlement, some sense of entitlement. Lord, you can have everything else, but sorry, this is mine. You, you don't understand the vertical dimension of the kingdom of God. It hasn't gone very deep in your life. There's a horizontal aspect, that's the proclamation of the gospel. There's a vertical aspect of the kingdom, that's sanctification. But then there's something else that we often forget, and that is there's the negative aspect, and that is the foiling of Satan. Don't forget, Satan has a kingdom too. Did you know that? Satan has a kingdom. Mark 12, verse 36, Jesus said, And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And we are reminded of Abraham Lincoln's immortal words in the Gettysburg Address, where he quoted from that. Satan got his kingdom by conquest in the Garden of Eden. He conquered man in paradise. He really did. Sometimes we're afraid to say these things, but we need to. The Bible speaks of Satan's throne in Revelation 2, verse 13. Jesus directed these words to one of the churches, seven churches in Revelation. Thou dwellest where Satan's throne is. Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness by saying, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you would just fall down and worship me. Was that a vain boast? No, it was a real one. He is the God of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air. He does have power. He has subjects. He has slaves. He could have given Jesus the kingdoms of the world at that time. So when we pray, we are pleading with God to allow His kingdom to triumph over Satan's kingdom. That's why we have to plead the blood of Jesus against him. Oh, you say, Pastor, but is don't I've heard you say before, he's a defeated foe. Yeah, he is. At the cross, Jesus, the seed of the woman, crushed the seed of the serpent, crushed the serpent's head. But the devil's still running around like a chicken with his head cut off. He knows his time is short, and he's just stepping it up all the more. And that's why we need to learn the sacred art of wrestling in prayer. Do we know anything about that? The Bible speaks about wrestling. Who who do we wrestle with? Do we wrestle with God? I don't think so. God is more ready and willing to answer our prayers than we are to give them, pray them. But we have to wrestle with our sinful flesh And according to Ephesians 6, verse 12, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with what? With principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. That's a real fight, folks. 
That's why I make such a big to-do about prayer. I know I sound like a broken record, but I'm trying to get people to pray all the time. Join our Zoom prayer meetings. Come on Wednesday night. Come on Sunday night when we break up and pray. Let's pray. Our times are desperate, but God's people are not. We do everything else. We've got time for everything else. And our kids and our country are going to hell in a handbasket. What's it going to take to get us to pray and wrestle in prayer? Yes, there's a vertical dimension. There's a horizontal dimension. There's the negative aspect. We're praying against the devil, against his kingdom. But then there's the future manifestation of the kingdom. When we say thy kingdom come, I think we need to include that in our minds and our thinking. Some of the last words in the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 20, even so come Lord Jesus. And his kingdom will not be physically set up on earth until he comes. And so we're to pray for that divine earthly kingdom to come. We're to pray for Christ to return to establish his millennial reign without any apology. We, we believe that here. We believe in a literal millennium. When God's will will be enforced, by the way, it will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the golden age. That's the halcyon age. It's going to come to earth. God is going to vindicate himself in time and in the sphere in which the devil has reigned. That's my hope. And this involves basically two things as we think of the future manifestation of the kingdom. First of all, there's the universal acknowledgement of the king. Right now, most men are at enmity with God because they have not been reconciled to him. The language of their hearts is, as we read in one of the parables of Jesus given in Luke chapter 19, verse 14, we will not have this man to rule over us. <laughs> oh, at Christmas time, they can get all sentimental and come, and they love the nativity figures here. They love to talk about the baby Jesus, but, <laughs> oh, don't talk about the king who's going to enforce his rules. Don't talk about the king whose eyes are as a flame of fire, whose feet are as burnished brass, who's going to judge me. Don't give me that stuff. But one day, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's in the Greek, kurios, master, king, supreme in authority, to the glory of God the Father. You say, when, Pastor? When the heavens split wide open and the king comes back and descends on the, on the Mount of Olives, and it will split wide open, and He establishes His glorious reign on earth. That's when all the hopes of all the ages will be fulfilled, all the promises of God yet unfulfilled will be consummated then. There will be one, not one outward rebel. That's when all Israel will be saved. King Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. His will will be perfectly done on earth as it is in heaven. And I ask you, isn't that worth praying for? I think so. Universal acknowledgement of the king involves the second thing, and that is universal righteousness and peace. When Jesus does come back, he's going to inaugurate a glorious kingdom age, a perfect 
righteousness and peace. And, and there's so many references in the Old Testament and the New to this. They give unanimous testimony and witness to this. Let me just give you a couple. You need not turn there for the sake of time. Isaiah 32, verse 1. Isaiah 32, 1. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. That king is Jesus. Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark. And it goes on to say, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's going to happen, folks. Some people take it figuratively. No, I don't think so. That's the halcyon age for which all creation and all the redeemed groan and travail. Yes, no man knows the day nor the hour of our Lord's return, but that's when He will usher in His kingdom. But still we should pray, Jesus said, Thy kingdom come. The Scriptures teach that somehow our prayers, and I don't understand this, but I'll be honest about it, I still pray it this way. Somehow our prayers do something to hasten the kingdom. As far as we're concerned. As Peter said, jot this scripture down in 2 Peter 3, verse 3, looking for and hasting unto, looking for and hasting unto, literally hastening the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Yes, from God's vantage point, the time is fixed when Jesus will return. Even Jesus, while He was here on this earth, said, the Son of Man doesn't know the day or the hour when He's going to return. That doesn't mean He doesn't know now, but in His humiliation He didn't know. From God's vantage point, the time is fixed when Jesus will return, but from ours we can hasten it by praying fervently for it and by witnessing to make sure that all of the elect are gathered in. So there's the advance of God's kingdom. We need to pray for it in its present aspect and in its future manifestation. But then there's, and we'll only get into this for a little while, we'll have to finish it next week, God willing, on Memorial Day Sunday. Secondly, there's the accomplishment of God's will. There is the passive expression, thy will be done, that comes on the heels of that request and flows naturally from it, thy kingdom come. Now, when Christ's kingdom comes to earth, all rebellion will be suppressed. I don't know if you've thought about this, but when Christ's kingdom comes to earth for the first time since the fall in Eden, The will of God will be done perfectly on earth just as it is in heaven for the first time. The will of God, that's a deep subject. We can never exhaust it. We dare not pry into the secret decrees of God. But there are some things that God is willing to reveal to us. Let's try to understand it so that we can pray intelligently this prayer, Thy will be done. First of all, I want to define God's will. God's will defined. A dictionary definition would be something like this. The will is the act or process of volition. And it gives a secondary definition, a wish, desire, longing, an inclination, a disposition, a pleasure. And then another one, a request. And then further, a command or decree. Now, theologians try to distinguish between different aspects of God's will. Perhaps the most 
familiar terms are that of, and maybe you've said it, I've said it too, there's the directive will of God, there's the permissive will of God. There's plan A and plan B. We need to be careful about that because sometimes we can use plan B as a catch-all. So for the practical purpose of helping us in prayer, I've uh, made the following distinctions. I hope this will make it clear and helpful. There is the, first of all, the secret or sovereign will of God. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 29? Deuteronomy chapter 29 and look at verse number 29, the last verse of the chapter. God has a plan for the ages and nothing can hinder His sovereign will. Yes, there are some secret aspects to this sovereign will. Look at what the Bible says here. In verse 29, the last verse of chapter 29 of Deuteronomy, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. We'll stop there because I'll read the rest of the verse in a moment for the next point. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. When God stepped out on the balcony of creation and said, let there be light, His sovereign will was instantly fulfilled. Nothing, no one could stop it or even postpone it. When he says to the waters and to the waves, hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, as we read in Job 38 verse 11, I'm telling you, no climate change, no global warming, nothing's going to change that. Thank you for all two of you. There's really no need to pray about those things. I don't know about you, but I have never worried enough to pray the prayer, Lord, please let the sun come up in the morning. Has anybody prayed that? I don't see anybody. There are some things that um, are just God's sovereign will we don't need to pray about. It would be a serious mistake, however, to assume that since God is absolutely sovereign, His will is always done whether or not we pray. Stay with me. We'll explore some other aspects of God's will. There is His secret will mentioned in the first part of verse 29. There is His revealed will, as the verse goes on to say, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. God does reveal some things about His will. Let's break down this revealed will of God. This is where we, we, this is not a seminary class. I get accused of teaching things on a seminary level. All of us can understand this. First of all, there is His moral will, His moral will. This is pretty well summed up in the Ten Commandments, isn't it? They are all moral by nature. An introductory verse or a summarizing verse would be 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God, even your what class? sanctification. That's the vertical dimension of the kingdom of God. It is God's will that we be holy. Be ye holy, for I am holy. That's the only reason He gives. That's the only reason He needs when we need. It is God's will that we be holy. It is God's will that we be conformed to the image of Christ. It is God's will that we refrain from those things forbidden in the Ten Commandments, from stealing, from murder, from dishonoring our parents, from adultery or any kind of sexual sin, and from covetousness. That's God's will. That's His revealed will. No doubt about that. That's not open to interpretation. God's moral will. Then there's God's inclinations. 
God has a will that expresses His desire, His disposition. And we read in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, running a little bit late, so otherwise I'd have you turn there. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. That's not the only place where God says that. In the Old Testament, we read in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Aren't you glad of that? Aren't you glad that's His, that's his heart? That's His desire? All right, well, the obvious question that comes from that, does that mean that everybody's going to be saved? If God wants everybody to be saved, why does there need to be a hell? Is that just for the devil and his angels? It was prepared for them, but is that the only ones that are going to be there? No, we know that people that don't repent, don't believe, are going to be in hell. After all, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Does that mean everybody's going to be saved? No. Such statements in the Bible express God's inclination and His disposition. So when we pray for the salvation of sinners, we pray that way knowing that not everybody is going to be saved. But what has God revealed? God has revealed that there will be in heaven, He's going to bring to heaven a multitude that no man can number. (laughs) So don't we have an argument in prayer? Lord, my husband, my brother, my loved one, my neighbor, my co-worker, if you're going to save a multitude that no man can number, can they not be among that number? So if we desire the salvation of souls for God's glory, it must be God that lays that burden to pray for them on our hearts. And it must be that He has a purpose of grace for those individuals. Are you praying daily for the salvation of certain people? Some of you are. I'm praying daily for the salvation of three men. And right now they're as far from salvation as you could imagine. That I was encouraged by what George Mueller did, praying daily for five men. And in some cases he had to wait 50-something years before they got saved. In the case of the last two, they got saved after he died. But he told people before he died, they're going to get saved. Because God would not have laid them on my heart if He didn't have a purpose of grace for them. Does that do anything for you? What great encouragement to persevere in prayer. Then there's the second aspect of the will of God, and that is God's will done. Thy will be done. I'll say more about this next week, but this is not mere resignation. This is not saying case or us whatever will be, will be. Can't fight against God, so just be the big sigh of relief and submit. No, we need to submit, but we need to do it actively. Amen? We need to do it willingly, heartily doing the will of God. If you've ever eaten in the Wilds Dining Hall, and some of you may be about to do that this summer for the first time, before you get to eat, you've got to quote a verse. And it's 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. A companion text would be Colossians 3, 23, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Echoing what we read in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. 
we do God's will like those who do it in heaven, or we are to, with alacrity, with holy enthusiasm. That means we'll do it like the angels do it, because they're in heaven, the ones that haven't fallen. The Hebrew word for seraphim, it's interesting that we have cherubim and seraphim, right? Both of them angelic creatures. The Hebrew word for seraphim means burners. This speaks of the intensity with which they serve and worship God. How do the angels worship and serve God? Listen to Psalm 103, verse 20. I think this gives us a little insight. Bless the Lord, ye his angels that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Did you catch that? The angels in heaven hang on every word that comes from the throne. And they do it with alacrity, with enthusiasm. So let's do God's will actively. Let's do it passively. Again, I'll say more next week. My time is gone. There is a sense in which we need to suffer God's will, and that involves actual suffering. We'll talk about that. And failure to do that leaves us frustrated because we feel entitled to something different, entitled to something better. And I'm sure I'm speaking to a number of frustrated people here this morning. Things are not working out the way you think you deserve. And so you're miserable to be around. Our great need is to embrace with both hands the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. One of my favorite poets is a man by the name of Henry Van Dyke. He was, wrote poetry about a century ago, many, many poems. He was a son of a Presbyterian minister who gave up on his son, said he'll never get saved, but I think he did. Wrote some of the best poetry, most spiritual poetry. He wrote one poem that's, as far as I'm concerned, worth his fame if he never wrote any other. It's called Peace. Henry Van Dyke wrote this poem, Peace. With eager heart and will on fire, I fought to win my great desire. Peace shall be mine, I said. But life grew bitter in the weary strife. My soul was tired and my pride was wounded deep. To heaven I cried, God grant me peace or I must die. The dumb stars glittered no reply. Broken at last, I bowed my head, forgetting all myself, and said, Whatever comes, His will be done. And in that moment, peace was won. That's the way God has ordained things. Can you say that from your heart? Can you say the only thing that matters Whatever comes, Lord, your will be done. That's not stoic fatalism. That's embracing the will of God with both hands. That's the secret to peace and effective service for Christ. Let's pray. Father, give us surrendered wills 
give us a hearty acceptance of your good and acceptable and perfect will. I may be speaking to some today who are resisting your revealed will. Maybe some are resisting the command to repent and believe the gospel, and they're not saved. You've commanded them to do that, but they've neglected to do it. Maybe they think that at a more convenient season they'll do that. Maybe they think God is demanding too much of them. Oh, God, convict them. Give them a renewed will. Truly, it's, it is for all of us that our wills are ours to make them thine. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand to our feet as we sing.